Thanks so much for listening to Radio Cachimbona, a critical race theory and abolitionist podcast that follows me, Yvette Borja, in my journey in being a movement lawyer in Southern Arizona. If you'd like to support the podcast project, then please go to patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Patrons get first access to episodes just like this one and also help me in my goals of doing this podcast full-time. Thank you to the latest patron, Andrea. I appreciate you so, so much. And also another way to support the podcast, if you can't support monetarily right now, is to leave a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're accessing Radio Cachimbona, leaving a review there really, really helps with visibility. Although I recorded this episode last year, it is unfortunately ever still relevant, especially because earlier this year in March, Jeff Boyce, the professor who I interview, and the ACLU of Michigan published a report documenting the things that he's talking about here, which is CBP's blatant use of racial profiling on the northern border of the U.S. And so I will include that report in the show notes for you all to read. Again, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Okay, great. So today I'm very excited to have Jeff Boyce, who is the academic director of the Earlham College Border Studies Program. And I'm here today to talk to Jeff about something that is less focused on both on this podcast and in the media discourse around immigration in general, which is uh, immigration enforcement at the northern border. And also just more generally how uh, Arizona law enforcement, racial profiling tactics, like those codified in SB 1070 actually exist in in cities uh, across the US that maybe people wouldn't associate the quote unquote borderlands with. So we're excited to have you here today. And the first thing that I wanted to ask you is if you could explain the mission of the border studies program that you're a part of. Yeah. So the Border Studies program is a semester-long off-campus immersion program in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. So we are, I mean, we're essentially the the equivalent to a study abroad kind of program, but we have a specific Mm -hmm. geographical focus and uh, curriculum that uh, is based on the kinds of, the the histories of, of the communities here in Southern Arizona and perspectives that have emerged out of those communities. And and so students who come on the Border Studies Program have the opportunity to do different kinds of internships with, for example, uh, immigrant rights organizations. Uh, we have mm-hmm. had students in the past do an internship at, at the ACLU office. They've worked with Colibri oh, nice. Center for Human Rights. They've worked with the Florence uh, Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project. Some students end up doing work in in bilingual education or school garden programs. So there's a whole variety of ways that they, uh, in addition to taking classes here in Tucson and 
uh, staying with families. So they actually do homestays with with local families. Mm-hmm. They're also doing hands-on work in the community r- related to what are really urgent topics here uh, in 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 our community. So these are generally semester-long placements. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's really cool. Uh, and so I know the some of the organizations that you mentioned have an obvious tie to the border, like the immigration rights organizations, but. Mm-hmm. What what are the what's the border lens or the border framework for a person whose project is like you said the school garden? Sure. Well, in in Tucson and and in Pima County, I mean, there's a few ways to 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 answer that question. Actually, you know, I mean, we are a community. Almost almost half of the the population in 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 Tucson grows up speaking Spanish in the home. And you know, I mean, these these represent folks with a variety of backgrounds. Some some folks are some some kids are growing up in immigrant homes. Their parents are first generation arrivals from Mexico or or, or mm-hmm. some other country. But also, I mean, Spanish has been spoken in in these lands lo- much longer than English, right? There, I mean, there's lots of families mm-hmm. that go back generations, and even longer than Spanish has been Yaqui and Tonorum spoken mm-hmm. spoken in these lands. Mm-hmm. So this is also reflected in in our in the the population of children in our in our schools. And fortunately, we live in a community in which there has been a real effort to respond to those different cultures and histories and the the perspectives that that emerge from those those histories of colonization and of struggle right into curriculum and that's of course itself been the source of conflict and controversy including the the state government efforts starting in 2010 to um, mm-hmm. to forcibly dismantle ethnic studies in Tucson's public schools and I think it should be noted since we'll be talking about SP 1070 that that bill HB 2281 was passed within weeks of SB 1070 mm-hmm. and and really they should be thought of as as I think a coupled piece of, of legislation that was a direct attack on again that really the fabric of this community and 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 peoples and and histories and identities that have that are deeply deeply rooted here. Yeah, and just to kind of name it, it's really blatantly anti-migrant. It's blatantly anti-migrant and racist. Mm -hmm. So you've written about the about the expanding of the U.S. border, right? The hundred mile jurisdiction that they have, and like I brought up earlier, the less focused on northern U.S. border. Can mm-hmm. you speak on the similarities and distinctions in policing and militarization on the northern border as compared to the southern U.S. border? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting at this moment to to reflect on what's happened on on the northern U.S border, the U.S.-Canada border. We're living, so this podcast interview, <laughs> I'm sitting in my home in my office and we're, we're, we're doing this remotely because like most people in the country, right, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basically trying to avoid going out in public and doing my part to, you know, quote unquote, flatten the curve and mm-hmm. uh, prevent the spread of, of coronavirus. This, this pandemic has 
uh, we all know the impacts it's having. It's exploded around the country. And if we look back at how we got to this point, right, I mean, it really comes to the Trump administration having decided in January of, of 2020 of this year that by shutting down the border to folks traveling from China, that they had essentially solved the problem that they had that they that they had basically controlled the risk of, of spread in the United States. And uh, rather than seeing this as simply buying time, which would have been the appropriate thing to do, the thing that epidemiologists uh, advised at, at that time, right? That, that this wasn't going to actually prevent the spread of the virus. This was simply going to slow it down so that the country could get testing into production and other types of medical, you know, masks, ventilators, all the things that we need, right? And I'm, I'm mentioning all of this because I think that the, the story of the northern border really goes back to the September 11th, 2001 um, terrorist mm -hmm. attacks and a similar belief, right, that this kind of spectral threat of terrorism that landed in this spectac spectacular way on people's laps in a way that I think for most people was really unexpected and jarring and many, many people tragically died in, in, in those attacks. There was this belief that this too, this, this new threat that, that the country was grappling with could be resolved simply by by cracking down on the border. And we saw this right. along the US-Mexico border for, for sure. And, you know, we can we can talk about that. I mean, I think that story is, it, people are more familiar with it, right? Uh, the things that have gone mm -hmm. up, all the, all the surveillance technology and drones and the thousands and thousands of deaths of migrants who are have been pushed out into really remote, deadly uh, desert areas mm -hmm. as they're attempting to, to cross the border. What's less known and what people are less familiar with is that the very same process unfolded on the northern border. They were coupled. And in fact, that buildup on the northern border, if you if you go back and, and track the politicians who advocated for it over time, people like Candace Miller, mm -hmm. who represented uh, Southeast Michigan for about a decade. She was the, the chairwoman of the House Subcommittee on Border and Maritime Security. I mean, she hammered over and over again the, the, the supposed terrorist threat that was going to emerge from an uncontrolled border with Canada, right? That, that this was a backdoor into the country and, and, and would remain so unless there was a, a buildup of, of, of enforcement and surveillance and, and related practices. And so, beginning with the Patriot Act in, in 2001, right, there um, was a mandate that the Border Patrol increase its, its personnel. And mm -hmm. uh, the Patriot Act actually included tens of millions of dollars for new surveillance and, and other types of equipment for the northern border. And then in uh, this was immediately followed by additional legislation in 2000, I believe it was 2004, that actually mandated that 20% of all new hires in the Border Patrol be, be stationed on the U.S.-Canada border. And in 2006, when Congress once again mandated a doubling of the size of the border, this meant that a substantial portion of those new hires wound up on the Canadian border. Which And, and so what we saw was, for example, in the Detroit sector, which includes the whole state of Michigan and, and northeast Ohio along Lake Erie, that sector grew from 28 agents in 2001 to more than 420 agents by uh, 2011. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this was a, like, essentially a 16-fold increase in the personnel. That was the fastest rate of growth of anywhere in the country. So, mm-hmm. the, so if you just look at the rate at which the, the number of personnel increased, it, it far outpaced anything that happened on the southwest border. Of course, there were already a lot of personnel deployed here in places like southern Arizona. Is it the same type of border enforcement that occurs at the southern border? Yeah. I know so, even though there's, there's, you know, increased personnel is the type of enforcement that they do similar, right? Because in Arizona, it's very specific. There's mm-hmm. ranch who share the border with Mexico who are having border patrol agents come onto their land, their private property. And there's checkpoints that are quite intrusive to the lives of folks who live in these more rural communities like Arabaca. And I'm wondering if there's that same kind of militarization in these along Lake Erie, for example. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, that's a, that's a interesting question. If we think about the the laws that that govern and authorize and constrain U.S. Border Patrol practices, and that 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 grant the Border Patrol uh, particular kinds of authority, those actually are 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 not restricted to, for example, the Southwest border. In fact, the the uh, and there's a whole story behind this, right? But but today, the Border Patrol's jurisdiction and the authorities it's able to exercise are authorized within a hundred miles of, of any land and sea border uh, land and sea border in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that includes both the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Gulf Coast. That includes, for example, the island of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And it also includes the northern and southwestern land borders. If you map that out, right, it actually turns out that that about two thirds of the population of the country lives in what the right. government defines as a border area. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an important question then. So so we know what what the government has the authority to do by defining these areas as as border regions. It, it becomes an interesting and an important question then in practice, right? How are they actually acting on on these authorities and where are they doing so? And that's been the kind of thing that that ha- th- that kind of question has really animated. It's driven much of my research on on the northern border. So I spent about eight eighteen months doing uh, field work in Detroit, Michigan, and a little bit of time in Western New York between uh, twenty eleven. Oh no, sorry, twenty twelve and twenty fourteen. So over the course of three years, mm-hmm. I spent about eighteen months up there, and then. Since 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 2014, I've been involved in litigation in concert with the ACLU of Michigan and uh, the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center to try to obtain, using the Freedom Freedom of Information Act, internal records from uh, the Detroit sector and the Buffalo sector to understand patterns of arrest, mm-hmm. tra- training directives, uh, interagency collaboration and so on that that actually can give us insight into like what the what the what US authorities what the government is actually doing under these the kind of like auspices the umbrella of of border enforcement and so recently we've we've obtained tens of thousands of uh, of of arrest logs of individual logs for each arrest that the agency made between 2011 and 2019, and you know, like I said, tens of thousands of additional pages of of internal policy guidance and and other kinds of records. And so we've been in the process of of really trying to understand what these records tell us. It's a it's a, it's a huge volume of information to try to digest and and make sense of. 
But I can talk about two sets of records in particular. One are these daily apprehension logs that the agency uses mm-hmm. to track every single person that they take into custody, that they actually bring mm-hmm. to a station and fingerprint and, and so on. And the other are I-213 records, which are mm-hmm. records of, of deportable or inadmissible aliens is the mm-hmm. is technical mm-hmm. title, right? So these are people mm-hmm. who have been arrested that the government's going to take immigration action against. Because, of course, they, they can arrest you for non-immigration related reason if they find drugs or contraband on your in your vehicle or, or something like yeah. that, right? Or if they pull you... Border your, Patrol can only enforce federal laws, so that's why right. they can... Or they can engage in immigration enforcement and also why they can engage in, in uh, drug enforcement. Yeah, that's right. But it's also not uncommon that they'll, that they'll pull someone over. And, and Definitely. I, mm-hmm. I, I can talk about this. We see this in, in some of these it's patterns of this in these records. They'll yeah. pull someone over for whatever reason. And, and the first thing they do is they you know, ask them their citizenship. They ask them for some type of ID. They go and run the record to see if the, you know, everything matches. And they'll find out that like so-and-so has a, an outstanding bench warrant in, in uh, Oakland County. Michigan. Mm, mm-hmm. And so now that's that's somebody who the, the Border Patrol isn't actually arresting, arresting for any immediate violation of the law, but they're going to hold that person, uh, take them into custody, and then allow Oakland County sheriffs to come pick them up. So they end up really... That's very uh, interesting. Because they, usually it's the other way around that law enforcement, is, state law enforcement is collaborating with federal immigration enforcement agencies, holding them in jail so that ICE can then pick them up and bring them to detention. I hadn't really thought about the other way around. Yeah, and of course that happens a lot too, right? That that it's it's state and local law enforcement feeding people in, into the into the border patrol. So, so the I two thirteen records that I mentioned these these also don't just give us data points about the 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 people being arrested, but actual narrative descriptions of the chain of events that led up to the arrest. And so, it gives us a much richer, more granular way of understanding actually how agents on the ground are making decisions about who to stop, and then what happens in the aftermath of that stop, and what are the the bases that they are citing, that they're articulating to to say that that it's justified then to detain that person or arrest them. So in, in the records we've looked at between October 2011 and June 2019, the Border Patrol records a total of 13,239 arrests in, in the Detroit sector and, and close to 7,000 arrests in the Buffalo sector. So more than 13,000 arrests in Detroit and close to 7,000 in the Buffalo sector. And a, a, a about 60% of those arrests are uh, initiated by the Border Patrol, Border Patrol itself. So this goes back to the third-party law enforcement question that, that you mentioned, mm-hmm. like local police, mm-hmm. county sheriffs, state police, and so on. About 40% of those arrests are actually being initiated by by, by another jurisdiction. And, and so it's like right. county sheriffs someone over, questioning that mm-hmm. person's citizenship, or for some other reason, calling Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. And... One thing that's worth noting is when we look at the the basis for those initial other agency stops, right? Ninety percent of these are are traffic stops or vehicle mm-hmm. accidents or disabled vehicles, mm-hmm. which means that it's like really people just driving in their vehicle, going about their everyday lives. That is that is the context in which some type of like law enforcement encounter is 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 initiated. 
Yeah. Well, it's another similarity to the southern border, I think, because we've seen number. So I work with the Kino Border Initiative frequently, mm-hmm. and recently they've shared numbers that around 40% of the deportees that they see in Nogales, Mexico, are people who came into contact with ICE because of some type of interior law enforcement, which, That's right. like you said, a lot of times is really a routine traffic stop. And because of 1070, it's racial profiling that is... Yeah. Uh, causing police yeah. officers to make these traffic stops. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and here in Arizona, that's been a big issue for a long time. And of course, it's one because of laws like 1070 that has gotten a lot of scrutiny, I think, appropriately so. But here, what we're seeing is essentially the same types of, of practices happening in places that are you know, typically not people aren't paying attention to what a Wayne Wayne County Sheriff or Macomb County Sheriff are doing or the Detroit Police Department, right? Mm-hmm. But it's replicating these these same kinds of patterns. And just to give some examples, right? About a quarter of the time when these local police are contacting Border Patrol, it's explicitly they're explicitly saying it's because the person I've pulled over speaks Spanish. Right. About half of the time, it's for what they're calling identification assistance, right? But but a good chunk of that time, about 20% of those cases, it's only the pass a passenger or a pedestrian who is being who's who 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 they're who they're detaining, right? Who are people who are not required to carry ID or produce ID mm-hmm. to to local police. I mean, you're only really required to have a a license, right, when you're driving a vehicle. That's what mm-hmm. it's for. These are the collateral arrests that people talk about a lot, especially, right. right? Like with this, another example of collateral arrests are ICE doing an enforcement action at a home where there's other undocumented people that they were unaware of and everybody gets picked up as That's a result. Right. That's right. It's collateral action, but but it's also the case that, that you know, there's no, if, if, if it's, if, if there, if a driver's presented valid ID, there's no legitimate basis for detaining a, a passenger uh, until, right. you know, just for the Border Patrol to arrive and to verify their identity. In fact, in the mm-hmm. lawsuit, my understanding is in the lawsuit against, against SB 1070, actually the, the Supreme Court was explicit about this, that it would be unconstitutional to hold any person longer than is required to to. Right. Uh, complete the the a legitimate law enforcement action. So, for example, issuing a traffic citation to a driver, mm-hmm. not not to a, a, a passenger. So, so let it me. It seems talk, like the talk, problem with yeah. this is that law law enforcement officers have so much latitude in terms of their discretion, especially with this idea of reasonable suspicion, this lowered standard that police officers need to abide by in order to justify pulling somebody over. Like you said, they're literally writing down "speak Spanish." It's it's very blatant racial profiling, but that's not even that subtle. It's right. It's like yeah. they don't write looks Mexican, but they write, speak Spanish. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it becomes even more alarming when we look at, when we step aside from from the local law enforcement and we look at the justification, the, the rationale that the Border Patrol is articulating for, for themselves initiating a, a traffic stop uh, or detaining people. So when we look at the Border Patrol itself, 20% of the time, they explicitly say it's a person's Hispanic appearance that is one of the reasons why they're they're detaining somebody or initiating what they're calling a uh, voluntary interview, right? So mm-hmm. approaching somebody and then starting to ask them them questions. Legal fiction, voluntary. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I People mean, are so frightened, they don't feel the freedom to leave. 
Yeah, and they often don't know that they even have those kinds of, that they don't know what rights they have to actually refuse to answer questions. And then again, as you're saying, it's super intimidating to, to try to assert that against a, 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 you know, a uniformed federal agent, right? Right. Yeah. So, well, I was, I was just going to add, you know, some of the other data that the Border Patrol cite for detaining people is they say in, in more than half, in 52% of cases, they say it was a, a person's perceived reaction to having seen the Border Patrol that is the basis for wow. suspicion. Yeah. And, and, and they also oftentimes cite a vehicle's appearance as, as a basis for suspicion. And, and it's important right. to, like, one of the things that I've written about that I think is really alarming is, is that the, the, the Border Patrol has actually asserted, right, that, that it's a person's direction of travel away from the border right, can, can be an indication of unlawful activity. So think about Southeast Michigan. It's absurd, right? I mean, it, it, basically, it means if, if the border is southeast of you, right, at any given time, mm-hmm. uh, then you have a 50% chance <laughs> at any given time to be driving in a direction of travel away from the border. And on, on any given trip that you're taking to the store or to mm-hmm. pick up your kids from school or whatever, it's almost certain at some point you're going to move in the direction of travel away from the border. But yet this is actually being cited as the lawful basis for, or as one among oftentimes several lawful bases for initiating uh, a stop. Right. And, you know, just one last thing that we that, that I think is worth commenting on that we see in these records is also the Border Patrol responding to, you know, what, what are called like c- civilian or citizen complaints, right? So uh, a gas station attendant um, calling in and saying, hey, I see these people who are speaking Spanish and, you know, I, I think they might be undocumented, right? Or whatever language they, yeah. they So, you know, this is like a really alarming type uh, uh, type of, of be- behavior that the Border Patrol yeah. is actually, I think, responding to and, and maybe encouraging, right? By virtue of that, yeah. by virtue of that response. Definitely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I think this was a really great intro into thinking more about the ways that border enforcement and wide discretion in policing and collaboration between local law enforcement and ICE and Border Patrol is occurring at the northwest border. So I think we'll just have to continue (laughs) this conversation again later on and really appreciate you making time to talk to me. Yeah, Yeah, I was happy to. Okay, great. Bye, everyone.